Um, as Pastor Steve mentioned, I uh, am one of your supported missionaries here. I work with TMAI primarily in the Philippines, but the Lord, as I mentioned in the first hour, has opened up some doors in South Asia in a predominantly Muslim country there, and I've been able to do training, and I was able to share some of the, uh, some of the things the Lord's doing. It's quite amazing the doors He's opened. And the first time that I was able to travel there was actually a, a year ago this month. Uh, the Lord, had, COVID uh, restrictions had started to ease a little bit, so the country opened up. I was able to go. And while I was there, I had the privilege to visit uh, many churches and also had the opportunity to visit with some Afghani believers who had fled Afghanistan when the U.S. pulled out. And they shared with me their testimonies. One couple had told me about how an American soldier had brought them to the Lord uh, while, they, while he was stationed there. Um, several others told me of other missionaries that were in the country. Uh, because the United States was there, there was some protections provided for them. They were able to come and they heard the gospel. And they also told me of their testimonies of why they fled. Uh, once the United States pulled out, immediately that very day, the Taliban had put together kill lists, is what they called them. And that's exactly what they were. And they were going house to house uh, the very day that our troops were flown out, they were going house to house looking for believers. And if they found them, they would take them out, execute them, and often killing the children first in the eyes of their parents. And they were telling me these stories. These particular folks were able to get out. They had heard that they were on these lists. In the middle of the night, they had gathered their kids, the clothes they had on their backs, and ran. And fled hundreds of miles in some cases, and fled into this particular country I go to in South Asia. And, you know, as I was listening to their stories, um, one, I was encouraged just by how the Lord had brought them to faith and how He'd introduced them to the gospel. But I have to admit, I also struggled uh, with anger. Um, I struggled a lot with it because as I heard about these stories of what our very own brothers and sisters were suffering because of the enemies of the gospel... And I was angry not only with, with our government leaders uh, and how that whole thing uh, came about, but most of it was directed towards those who were bringing these atrocities against our own family members in Christ. And to be honest, I was struggling a little bit as I was listening to them with hatred, um, wishing for judgment on those who had brought these situations, wanting them to suffer. Perhaps you felt that way too as you heard stories during that time. And as I thought about my struggle, there was a name that came to my mind, the name Jonah. He too had similar struggles. You remember him, right? He had similar feelings towards the Ninevites, didn't he? And I thought this morning it would be helpful to look at his story again. I know it's a story you are familiar with, but I wanted to take us and look at his story because I believe there's an important message within that story, an important message for us in our times. And before we do that, let me just ask the Lord to bless His Word. Father, as we come to You this morning, we are grateful that we can gather and worship You freely, that we can sing out loud to You together, that we can come here and not be in fear of uh, someone coming in and Lord, doing terrible things to us, Lord, we thank you that we have the freedom to, to worship you. Uh, Lord, let us not take that for granted. 
but be ever gospel-minded. I pray, Lord, you would use your word now as we look to uh, this story in Jonah, that you would stir our hearts, Lord, to understand and apply the message you have for us. May your spirit be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jonah, of course, is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, right? In fact, when I mention the name Jonah, what comes to your mind? The fish, right? The big fish that swallows Jonah. And I find it interesting that even though, you know, Jonah being inside the fish seems to be that focus, that thing that people remember, really it's only three out of the 48 verses in that story has to do with the fish. But I think the message of Jonah goes far deeper than just the miracle of the fish, as amazing as it was. The central person in the story isn't the fish, and actually it isn't Jonah either. And I think you'll see that as we go through it together. So let's reflect on the story a little bit first. Do you remember how it goes? How does it start? Look with me at verse 1. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so Jonah does what? In response to God's commission, he says, Oh, yes, Lord, I've been waiting to go to those poor, helpless souls in Nineveh in order to bring them your message. I'm going to be on the first train out of here. Is that what he did? No, we know. He went exactly did the exact opposite, didn't he? Look what happens in verse 3. Yet Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, which was going to Tarshish, and paid its fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. And so the book really begins with an irony. And we're going to see a number of ironies throughout the story. But the first one is this. Here we have a prophet who doesn't want to prophesy. And so God wanted Jonah to go to Assyria to deliver this message of judgment because of her wickedness. Or in Jonah 3.8 it says her violence. And then Jonah refuses to go. Now, Assyria was certainly known for its cruelty, uh, its violence. They were evil. They were ruthless. Uh, The things that they would do to the nations they had conquered, many of which can't be repeated here in this mixed audience and with kids. In fact, it's believed that the Roman practice of crucifixion was derived from things that the Assyrians would do to their conquered enemy. But though God gives Jonah this direct command to go to those people to proclaim a message of judgment, Jonah refuses to go. And this is what the story is often known for, right? So he does something very unwise for a prophet to do, is not only does he refuse to go, he actually runs in the opposite direction. If you were to look at a map and see where Jonah is from in central, north-central Israel, uh, in Gathafer, he went, instead of going northeast to Nineveh, he went southwest to Joppa. And he got on a ship, and then he went directly east, it says Tarshish, which is probably modern-day Spain, thousands of miles away. And if Jonah didn't want to go, the question I first had in this story is, why didn't you stay home? Why didn't you stay home? Lord, I ain't going. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to watch the college football playoffs and ESPN. I'm not going to Assyria. He didn't. He, he actually fled. He took off. He ran. Why does he go to the trouble to take a 60-mile journey down to Joppa and then get on a ship to go 2,000 miles away on a precarious uh, trip? It wasn't easy to go on ships in those days. Why did he do that? Well, notice it wasn't that he just wanted to get away from Nineveh. Did you see a phrase there repeated a couple of times there at the beginning? 
It says twice Jonah wanted to flee from, you guys see it? From the presence of Yahweh. Now, I'm sure Jonah was aware of what David said in Psalm 139, that, that you can't flee God. He is present everywhere, right? The omnipresence of God. I don't think it was that he wanted to escape God's sight. I think it was Jonah wanted to escape God's service. He did not want to do this. And basically, he's telling God, I'm done being your prophet. Find somebody else. I'm out of here. Because at the time, by the way, he was a prophet serving in northern Israel. And now it gets interesting. What's God going to do? The last time a prophet rebelled or disobeyed God, he was eaten by lions. You see that story in, I think, 1 Kings chapter 13. What's going to happen here? Well, we know the story, of course, right? Look at verse 4 with me. Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship gave thought to breaking apart. And then in the verses that follow, we see the, the sailors. What happens to them, right? They're terrified. Remember, and they're crying out to their gods, and then the captain of the ship is running around, he goes finds Jonah who's sleeping, and he's telling him to cry out to his God. Another irony, right? Because God is the last person Jonah wanted to talk to at that time. Right? So you see these sailors, they're the ones crying out for help. Jonah, who knows where to get help, he has nothing to do with it. Then verse 7, right? We see the sailors, what do they do? They cast lots to find out who's responsible for this storm. And guess what? The lot just so happens to fall upon Jonah. I wonder how that happened. So the sailors like interrogating him. Okay, who are you? Where'd you come from? And Jonah tells them that he worships Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea. (laughs) Right? And the sailors go, huh? Uh Uh-oh. So you're the problem. So they asked Jonah, okay, well, you've got us in this mess. How do we get out of it? And, of course, Jonah tells them to throw him into the ocean, to the Mediterranean. Look at verse 15. So this is what they did, right? They lifted Jonah up, hurled him into the sea. The sea stood still from its raging. Kind of reminds us of another story, doesn't it? Then the men greatly feared Yahweh. They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And then here it is, as Jonah is sinking down to the bottom of the Mediterranean, we come upon verse 17, which says this, Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, some say that it was a whale that swallowed him, but the Hebrew word here is the word for fish. So I think it was a large fish that swallowed him. And the great miracle is not that the fish swallowed him. There's actually been people found inside of large fish or whales or sharks, but they were dead. The great miracle here is he's alive after three days. In fact, we see this in verse 1 of chapter 2, which says, Then Jonah, after the three days, prayed to Yahweh from the stomach of the fish. That's the incredible miracle. And actually, you know, as I was studying this passage... um, I came across some commentaries from some liberal scholars that they were making the claim that actually Jonah was not swallowed by a fish, but actually he made it back to shore and was staying at a place called the Fish Inn. No joke. I actually read that from guys with multiple PhDs. They came up with that brilliant assessment. But in any case, chapter 2, right, is this poem from Jonah as he expresses his thanksgiving to God for, for bringing probably one of the most unique life vests in all of history to save him from drowning. 
And then we come to the end of chapter 2 as he, as he finishes that psalm of thanksgiving. Notice what it says there in verse 10. Then Yahweh spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And now verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to it this very call which I am going to speak to you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go into the city, one day's walk, and he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Stop there a minute. Okay, so Jonah's in the fish, right? How long? Three days and three nights. Now what kind of condition do you think he's going to be in? That's in that point, right? So the fish, God prompts the fish to go to shore and vomit him, literally, vomit him up onto the shore. So kind of picture the moment, right? Jonah, he had just come through, uh, he'd gone through a storm, sinking in the sea. Now he had been in a fish three days and three nights. Probably didn't smell too good. Probably was bleached from the stomach acids of the fish. I'm sure he's quite hungry. Probably a little bit thirsty. And he's standing there, scraps of seaweed on him. Who knows what he looked like. And God says, okay, Jonah, are you ready to go now? The Lord is pretty persuasive in that case. Jonah agrees. And so he takes the journey, probably 500 plus miles from where he was to Nineveh. Probably would have taken him a couple of months. But uh, the author skips that part and just jumps to right when he enters into the city. And he proclaims this message, right? What was the message? Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And so he proclaims that message. Guess what happens? Look at verse 5. Again, I know you're familiar with the story, but just take in, this is quite an amazing response. Remember, these are pagan, idol-worshipping, violent Assyrians. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word of the Lord, or the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing, do not let them eat, do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God with their strength, that each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn away from his burning anger, so that we will not perish. That is stunning. That is stunning. You realize this is probably one of the greatest revivals that, that's at least recorded in human history. I mean, Billy Graham never got such a response. Do you recall him going to any particular pagan nation where everyone was false idol worshipers, violent, evil, wicked, and they repent? And look at the manner in which they repent. It was quite extensive, wasn't it? I mean, could you even imagine our president saying some of these words, all the nation to repent to this degree? Well, this guy was ten times worse. King of Nineveh, the Assyrian king. Their track record in Scripture is not very good when it comes to belief in God. And yet here we have this incredible revival. It says they believed in God and then showed signs of true repentance. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 12 points back to these guys and said they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What was God's response? What did He do? 
Well, verse 10 tells us, chapter 3, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which He had spoken He would bring upon them, and He did not bring it upon them. God showed them mercy. Quite a story, right? Pretty amazing. So much has happened just in these short three little chapters. We have a, a, you know, the calming of an ocean, this disobedient prophet, then finally obeys, the Ninevites repent, a large fish no longer suffers from indigestion. I mean, it's a great story. But as we look at our Bibles, we notice it's not yet over, is it? There's a fourth chapter. And I think as we kind of pretend this was the first time you heard of this story. Pretend this is the first time you're reading through it. And as you get to the end of the third chapter, there's a question that would be at the back of our minds, I think, wouldn't it? Why did Jonah refuse to go? Why did he so blatantly disobey? Was he afraid? Oh, the Assyrians, you've got to be kidding me, Lord. Those guys are going to kill me the moment I step on their, in, the, in their city. Was he just not wanting to travel so far? I mean, that was a long, arduous, uh, risky journey to go several hundred miles over the desert from Israel to Nineveh. Or was he just tired of the hard life of being a prophet? You know, those guys didn't have it easy. What was it that prompted him, that motivated him to actually defiant, defiantly rebel against God? What was the issue? Why did he do it? Well, that's why we have chapter 4. It answers that question for us. Look with me at verse 1. But this, and this is referring to God's response of mercy to the Ninevites, this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, oh Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and the one who relents concerning evil. So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Stop there. This is interesting. We learn here in verse 2 that actually there was a conversation between Jonah and Yahweh, where Jonah expresses why he didn't want to go. He was so confident in God's compassion and kindness and graciousness and love. He knew what God was going to do. Did you catch that? So he said, I'm not going to go. Why am I going to go and see you offer them forgiveness? Because notice here he declares what Exodus 34 verse 6 says about God, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he's compassionate, abundant in loving kindness, and he forgives sin. This is repeated all through the Psalms, this these amazing characteristics and attributes of God. And Jonah knew this was true about him, about the Lord. And so Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he realized this. He was not bringing a message of judgment. He was bringing a warning. And he knew God's compassion for the lost. And he knew that God is a God of second chances. That's why you're here, isn't it? Because God is a compassionate God. And to put it bluntly, Jonah wanted these pagan Gentiles to burn in hell. That's why he didn't want to go. And from Jonah's complaint in verse 4, we see the theme of this book, really. We see the focus and the point 
of this book. And it's really a theme we see throughout all of Scripture, isn't it? God's great compassion, His mercy. Notice, in this particular story, we see God express that compassion in several ways, don't we? Where do we see it first? Let's go back again to chapter 1. God shows compassion on the sailors, doesn't He? Because as you think about that first chapter, you have to ask yourself this question. Was that storm for Jonah alone, or was it also for the sailors? You see, God could have gotten Jonah's attention any number of ways on his 60-mile journey from his hometown down to Joppa, right? He could have brought snakes or robbers, an earthquake. He could have done a number of things. As I mentioned, the prophet in 1 Kings, when he disobeyed God, he was actually caught up, the lions caught up to him and ate him. But God lets Jonah take that journey to Joppa. He lets Jonah get on that ship and lets that ship depart from port. And then he brings this great storm, terrifies these sailors, these sailors who had been on the sea who knows how many times over the years. They're terrified for their lives. So they're crying out to their gods. And they're wanting everybody on the boat to ask for help. And they cast lots. And this lot just so happens to fall upon Jonah. What's God doing here? You remember in Proverbs, right? It talks about the casting of lots, but their outcome is from whom? From God, right? He's sovereign over all things. So this lot falls upon Jonah. The sailors find out who Jonah is. They find out what he's done. And when they throw Jonah overboard, what happened? Instantly, the sea is calm. I said before, doesn't that remind you of Someone else who stood upon a boat at the Sea of Galilee and said, peace be still. How did it affect those sailors who were in the boat with Jesus? Right, that great fear and awe. Well, that's exactly what happened here. These sailors all of a sudden knew, this God, He's the one true God. Look what just happened. And what did they do? It says in verse 16 of chapter 1, they feared God, Yahweh, greatly. And they offered vows to him and a sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, some just excuse it. Oh, that's just they were responding like they do to their pagan deities. That they would have any other deity, they've done the same thing. But notice here, Yahweh, God's personal name, they repeated twice. And notice it says here they feared Yahweh. That's a term often used in the Old Testament to express a, 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 a true worship. The sailors' fear of death had now become a fear of reverence, an awe that led them to worship Yahweh. It says to offer sacrifice, and they made vows. This was not just some, oh, thank you, deity of the sky and the heavens. No, they said, Yahweh, we know you are the true God. I think they got saved on that ship. You see God's compassion here? They left ports as pagans. They came back as children of God. I think God led Jonah to them so that Jonah inadvertently would be leading them to him. Because you have to ask yourself, why are the sailors such a focus in chapter 1? Do you realize there's more mention of the sailors here than Jonah in that first chapter? I think they're really the focus in the beginning not so much about Jonah and what he did. It's about how God was going to use even Jonah's disobedience to accomplish his work 
in the lives of those sailors. And his compassion was not just limited to the sailors in this story, was it? There's another group of pagans, isn't there, that we see God express his compassion upon? Yes, of course, it's the Ninevites, right? And again, this is a group of people. Their reputation was clear. God could have let them continue on in their pagan worship. He could have let them continue on in their their violence and and the, the atrocities that they committed. But he sends a prophet from Israel to go to them to bring them a message. God didn't have to do that. He could have justly judged them, but he wanted to send Jonah. And how did they respond? Again, it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, they believed in God. That word is the idea of trust. A a change of the heart. And then notice, we know that it was genuine just by their response, right? They put on sackcloth and ashes. That was a, a, a demonstration of mourning, of great sorrow. And they ask God for, to, 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 to spare them. And then the king, boy, the extensiveness. They put the sackcloth on the animals. And we want everybody covered. We want this God to know that we are sorry. That we have committed great evil. Maybe he will show mercy on us. And that's exactly what God did, didn't he? Again, this we learn later, 120,000 people. What a revival. They believe in God. Now, how did that happen? Who is it that can affect the heart? Who is it that can open the eyes of the heart to believe? Right? This was a work of God, a mercy of God in the lives of these people. So again, we see God here showing mercy and compassion even on the sailors and even on these Ninevites. But His compassion doesn't end there in this story, does it? There's someone else who receives it. Who's that? Who is it? just want to make sure you're awake. Jonah, right? Jonah himself experiences God's compassion. In fact, right, you remember how the story begins, right? He, he disobeys God blatantly. He ends up, finds himself sinking down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And then God sent this fish. Now, if God wanted to punish Jonah, he would not have sent a fish. He would have sent a great white shark. Right? God's intention was to rescue this man in a way that would get his attention. So he sends this fish that keeps him from drowning. And again, it's so ironic. Jonah did not want to show mercy to the Assyrians, yet God showed mercy to Jonah in the midst of his defiance. And while he's sinking to the bottom, the fish grabs him, rescues him. Verse 2 of chapter 2, Jonah says, I called out in my distress to you, Yahweh, and you heard my voice. And then he praised God for his great mercy on him. Kind of ironic, isn't it? He welcomed it in his own life, but certainly didn't want to see it in the lives of others. God showed compassion on Jonah, but not just once. We see it twice. That brings us back to chapter 4. Look with me at verse 4. After Jonah tells God, Jonah's so angry, he tells God, I just want to die. Take me now, God. Look at verse 4. And Yahweh said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of the city, and he made a booth for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. 
So Yahweh, God, appointed a plant, and it came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his miserable evil. And Jonah was extremely glad about the plant. But God appointed a worm at the breaking of dawn the next day, and it struck the plant, and it dried up. Then it happened that as the sun rose up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun struck down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and asked with all his soul to die and said, Death is better to me than life. Stop there. So, (laughs) again, verse 3, right? Jonah says, I just want to die. And then God answers, do you have a a right? Do you have a reason, it says, to be so angry? And then Jonah doesn't answer him. He just walks out of the city. Man, this guy's playing with fire, isn't he? (laughs) And he goes out there, sits out, uh, makes himself a little camp just east of the city. He wanted to pout out there. And in that area, it can get up to, in the summertime, 130 degrees. When that hot east wind comes, I mean, it can be unbearable. So he builds himself this little shelter. And God then, also, what does he do? He starts, a, you know, puts a little plant there, right? Grows up over him. And then, you know, commentaries, they argue about what kind of plant this was. It's, it's kind of funny to see commentators and what they go on and on about. You know, so they're arguing, you know, it was a pumpkin plant, it was a squash plant, it was a gr- who cares? It was a plant that had a leaf big enough to shade him. That's the point. And then they argued about the worm. What kind of worm came? It's like, come on! <laughs> anyway, God grows this plant. The question isn't really what kind of plant was it, but it's why God provided the plant. Did you catch there what it said in the text? It seems God is again showing compassion on this guy by giving him a plant that's going to provide shade for him, right? And this burning sun. Notice it says in verse 6, the plant came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Now before, when Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, God brought a fish, right, to rescue him. So it seems like God might be doing the same thing here. Or is something else going on? Notice verse 6, there's a second purpose statement. It says, the plant grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and, listen, to deliver him from his miserable evil. You see, God wasn't really providing the plant for shade specifically and finally, because what happened the next day? Right? The worm came, ate the plant, it died. There's a much bigger purpose God had in giving this plant. It wasn't just to shade Jonah it was to save Jonah. Save him from, it says, his miserable evil. Uh, New American Standard, along with the ESV, the NIV, has to ease him from his discomfort. That's how they translated that. The New King James uh, and the uh, Net Bible said to ease him from his misery. But notice the, the Legacy Standard Bible says to deliver him from his miserable evil. Now, why did it translate it that way? That's a little bit different, isn't it, than to ease him from his discomfort? Well, hold that thought, because we're going to come back to it. And here's where we get to the heart of the story, I think. For, you see, God was more interested than just... God was interested more than just rescuing Jonah's body from the heat of the sun. He wanted to rescue Jonah's heart from the heat of his hatred. He wanted Jonah to understand true compassion. Again... God could have let Jonah just sit there and sulk outside the city, right? God didn't have to do anything. He could could let that prophet bake under the sun and die as Jonah wanted to do. But he doesn't do that. 
Notice verse 1. Again, of chapter 4, it says, This was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And that word for anger there is a burning anger. He was irate. He was furious. Why was he so furious? Why was he so angry? Again, notice it says this. This displeased Jonah. This made him angry. So angry he wanted to have God take his life. There's another irony here. You know those words, he says, oh, Yahweh, take my life. There was another prophet who made the same declaration back in 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah. After, the, after dealing with the prophets of Baal, right? You remember that on Mount Carmel, this great victory. But you know what? Even though the prophets were killed, the king and queen were still alive. Guess what, Guess what Elijah knew was going to happen? Baal worship was going to come back. And he gets discouraged. He goes out in the desert, remember? And he says, oh, Yahweh, take my life. And the irony here is that Elijah wanted to, the, to die because the people did not turn to Yahweh. Here, Jonah wanted to die because the people did. And again, God says, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And this is exposing this prophet's racism, his self-righteousness, his hatred. And again, instead of answering, he walks away. And again, verse 5 describes how Jonah went out of the city. Now picture, you've got to understand what's going on here. The author's given us enough information, I think, to show us clearly what's going on in Jonah's heart. Because many people think, ah, chapter 3, Jonah listens this time. He goes to Nineveh. But you know what? His obedience was just external. Because notice there's a few clues in the text. Picture the scene. Jonah's coming from the west, right? He's coming from Israel, moving into Nineveh. Nineveh is how how many days' journey to travel around the city? Did you catch it? How many? Three. How long was Jonah there? One. I think the idea is he went into the west gate of the city. He's proclaiming this message, five words only, that he declares. And then he leaves after one day out the east gate, goes up onto the mountain outside the city and sits down and sulks. Why didn't you just go to back to Israel? What do you think? Why didn't you just say, oh, okay, God, I did what you told me to do. I'm back on the first train back home. He goes outside the city to sit there. Why? It's hot out there. I think he was hoping something, wasn't he? Hoping that the Assyrians would not, that the repentance was not genuine, that they would turn back and God would bring judgment. Again, there's an irony here. <laughs> the text says the prophet sits down in his arrogance outside of the city, hoping for the city's destruction, while inside the city, the text describes the king rises up from his throne, hoping for God's mercy. There's that picture of these two individuals compared to one another. And again, before we think there's been a change in Jonah, notice these details. Jonah is mad at God for showing mercy. Again, I don't think his heart has changed. Sure, his actions changed, but not his attitude. And again, To see this even more clearly, go back to verse 1 again of chapter 4. Notice it says, this was a great evil to Jonah. That word evil is a word often repeated in this story. It's a word, uh, ra is the verb, ra'ah is the noun form. 
We don't see it um, in some of the English translations. We do in the Legacy Standard Bible. But notice in verse 1, it's literally this. It was an evil to Jonah, a great evil. It's repeated. It's emphasized there. What was a great evil? God's mercy. Jonah thought was evil. So evil, he got furious. Wow. How dark does your heart have to be to accuse God of committing an evil by showing mercy on these repentant Ninevites? Again, Ra'az used throughout the book, and I think the author uses it to tie together a key theme and an important thing we need to see from the story. That word Ra'ah basically has the idea of this. It's, it's an evil or a bad thing that a person does or that happens to a person. And so you often might see it translated as evil or wickedness or violence, and other times you may see it translated as a calamity or destruction, like if it's a, an evil event, something bad that happens to a person. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. God tells Jonah, the evil, the Ra'av, the Ninevites had come up before him. Then in verse 7, the sailor said, let us catch lots so that we, lots so that we may learn on whose account this evil has struck us, this Ra'ah, this calamity. The sailors use it again in verse 8. And then after hearing the king's, uh, Jonah's message, the king of Nineveh exhorts the people in Jonah 3, 8, each, that each would turn from his evil, his Ra'ah. And then verse 10 of chapter 3. In response to the Ninevites' repentance, it says God relented concerning the Ra'ah He was going to bring upon them. And then in the very next verse, Jonah 4 verse 1, God's action was seen by Jonah as Ra'ah, as evil. And then we come to verse 6. God brought the plant to deliver Jonah from his Ra'ah. Martin Luther said the greatest evil in the book of Jonah is Jonah. Because, he said, he tried to keep heaven from them. And so God brings this plant. He brought the fish to try to get Jonah's attention. Now he brings this plant to get Jonah's attention, to deliver Jonah from his evil pride and his racism, his self-righteousness, and his hatred. And notice verse 6 says, when the plant grew up over Jonah, what was Jonah's reaction initially? It says he rejoiced greatly. For the first time in the story, Jonah's happy. Why is he happy? Because God brought this plant. But then God brings along this worm or weevil or whatever it was. And the plant dies. And not only did God remove the plant, God stirs up the hot, scorching wind to blow upon Jonah. A hot wind that's so strong it blew Jonah's tent over. So there's this guy out there who's angry, wants to die. Now he's, oh, this is so hot out here. He's getting getting a heat stroke. And then verse 8, Jonah's so miserable, he again says the same thing. I want to die. Let's pick it up and look at verse 9. He says, ask the same question God does. Do you have a good reason to be angry? And this time Jonah answers, I miss my plant. (laughs) He refused to go to Nineveh because he didn't care if the Ninevites died in judgment. He refused to call on God in the ship. He didn't care about the sailors. He refused to want God to save Nineveh. But now this same prophet wants to die because of a plant. 
And here we come to the point of the story. The author's been leading us along to take us to the last two verses. Look at verse 10. Then Yahweh said, You had pity on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, and which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Notice God says, Jonah, you care about this plant. You got nothing to do with it. It grew and then it died. It was done. Shouldn't I care for these people? 120,000 souls? Human beings destined for judgment? And then the story ends. It just ends. And again, if this is the first time we're reading it, we should be, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, what happened? What did Jonah do? What did he say? How did he respond? Did he stay? Did he, did he leave? Did, what did he do? And this is where we see the importance and the focus of this story. The entire book has been leading us to this last question in verse 11. And there's no response given here by, by Jonah because that's not the point of the story. The author has flipped it on us. He's asking you that question. How will you respond? What do you think? You know, we, we get so caught up in criticizing Jonah, and he deserves it, that we can forget to look at ourselves. Because, you see, when I treat someone else with contempt who is not like me, I'm like Jonah. When, when I turn a blind eye to the spiritual needs of those around me, I'm like Jonah. When I don't pray for the lost, I'm like Jonah. When we fail to tell others the gospel when we have the opportunity, we're a lot like Jonah. When I don't care for the souls around me, when I'm not concerned for those in foreign lands, I am like Jonah. And listen, when I wish God's judgment on those Muslims or Hindus, those Buddhists, those atheists, those liberals... I am Jonah. When I don't care whether another person goes to heaven or hell, I am Jonah. I think that's what the author wants us to see. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. We have this wonderful opportunity to bring a message of compassion to those who need to hear it. It's a message of hope. It's a message of joy. We just went through the Christmas season, didn't we? And what was the message cried out by the angel at the birth of Christ? Rejoice, right? Be full of joy. Why? A Savior's been born. Luke said, uh, Jesus uh, said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And so as we read this story of Jonah, 
Don't make Jonah the focus. He's not the central character in the story. God is. Really, the antagonist in this story is Jonah. He's trying to thwart God, keep God from exercising his great compassion. And you know, as we think about sharing the gospel, I think we're given a great motivation here, not to share out of obligation or duty, but out of compassion, because that is what motivates our Lord. That's exactly what we see here in the text. His compassion. God is a God of great compassion, isn't he? He showed compassion on the sailors. He showed compassion on the Ninevites. He showed compassion on Jonah. And he's shown compassion on us, hasn't he? Because the the only way that, that you and I, that we could escape the judgment of hell, a judgment we all deserve because of our sin against God, our rebellion against God, we're just like Jonah. We disobeyed him in many ways. The Bible says all have sinned, all have turned aside. We don't seek God. So how did we find him? Well, he found us. He went after us. He brought us a message of salvation. Think about those people in your life that God used. That was an act of mercy. Those were kind of the Jonas, if you will. Now, I'm not saying they were bad people, but God brought someone in your life, didn't he? And then he sent his own son to pay a debt you and I could never pay. If that's not compassion and mercy, I don't know what is. The hymn writer Frederick Faber Faber said, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And we could say God's mercy extends right from one hand to the other. Have you sought God's mercy? Have you put your trust in in Him alone, just like those Ninevites did? Have you recognized you are a sinner in need of a Savior and there's nothing you can do to save yourself? There's nothing you can do. No good works. There's nothing you can do to appease for the sin that you've committed. Nothing I could do either. The only way that we could be forgiven is because someone else took upon himself the punishment you and I deserve. And he took that upon himself on a cross and rose from the dead to show that his sacrifice was gladly accepted by the Father. That's the only way. You know this passage. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but but through me. Have you come to the Father through him? If not, then that is the chief number one New Year's resolution you have to make today. Turn to Christ in faith, and He will gladly forgive. If it's a genuine desire to turn from your sin and put your trust in Him and Him alone. And then, you have the message and the privilege of proclaiming that wonderful compassion to others. To be salt and light. So for Jesus' sake, may we have compassion on the 120,000 around us. Amen? Let's pray. I want to give you a moment just to reflect on your own. Ask yourself, what is the degree of your compassion for those around you? And Just talk to the Lord about that a moment before I close us.
Oh, Lord, as uh, you declared to Moses when you passed by him that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Lord, that you forgive and at the same time judge sin, that you are holy, that you are just, that no sin will go without a just punishment whether that be suffering for eternity in hell or depending upon Jesus who took that punishment on Himself so that we would not have to suffer it if we would put our trust in Him alone. I pray, Lord, if there are any here with us this morning who have not yet done that, that Your Spirit would open the eyes of their heart just as You did with the sailors to show them their need for a Savior. I pray your spirit would also be at work in the rest of us as well to show our need to, to have that compassionate heart that you've displayed time and time and time again all through history and especially at the cross. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for their desire to Lord, proclaim and make the name of Christ known, even as it says on the marquee out front. I pray, God, you would use this church in a mighty way in this community and even around the world through their partnership with others. I pray you would bless the elders here, give them wisdom and understanding as they shepherd this flock and help them to equip the saints here to do the work of service so that in the end, Jesus would be glorified. We pray in His name. Amen.